Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Stop. <laughs> Piki mai kake mai and a big welcome to our changing world. Ko Alison Balancer ho. Later on tonight, we'll hear from scientists who put themselves through some rather painful self-experimentation in their quest to find a new kind of pain relief. But first, salps. Cast your mind back to last summer. There was the marine heat wave in the Tasman Sea. In fact, all around New Zealand, sea temperatures were much higher than normal. And with that warmth came thousands of gelatinous blobs. They made it feel as if you were swimming through a lumpy soup. Those blobs were salps. And tonight we're going to find out exactly what a salp is and what it does in the sea. And it turns out that a salp is much more closely related to us than you might have ever assumed. Our guide is Moira Decima, a plankton expert at Niwa. She has recently returned from an expedition on the research ship Tangaroa. This expedition was to study salps and specifically the effect of blooms of salps, so salps present in very high concentrations, on uh, biogeochemical flows. So that is on the cycling of certain elements, in particular carbon, but also uh, nitrogen and you know other elements that are important for life. The other aim of the voyage was to study the effect of these salt blooms on the food web. So traditionally, it was thought that not a whole lot of organisms would eat salps, and that's probably partially because you know salps are gelatinous and they degrade rapidly, and so our other methods, our original methods of looking at what fish ate, consisted of going into their stomachs and just seeing what remained there. And so they're and not hard that bits rec- better for that. Exactly, exactly. So our understanding was definitely biased towards organisms with hard bits. Okay, can I stop you there? Let's, yes. We'll come back to the voyage in a minute. Sure. We better explain what salps are. That's a good point. Salps are gelatinous organisms. They are, um, they're actually closely related to us, at least that's what we believe now. They're urochordates, so they have... A primitive spine, but it's not actually a spine, it's a notochord, so it's made out of cartilage. But in evolution, that came first, and then the spine that we have came afterwards. So they're actually of the plankton, they're the ones that are the closest related to us. So they're not jellyfish, which is what I think a lot of us think they are. Absolutely, they're not jellyfish, they will not sting you. And contrary to jellyfish, so jellyfish are actually carnivores, but salps are more on the herbivorous side. So they eat phytoplankton, so they, they have a very different location in the food web. But they're still like jellyfish floating around out at sea and they look gelatinous. If you look closely at them, they don't look like jellyfish because they don't have that pumping bell. But if you're swimming and you touch something that's jellyish, you will jump and think that it's a jellyfish. And, and here in New Zealand, it's probably, depending on the time of year, but it's very likely it could be a salp or a chain of salps. 
I think last summer was a very salpy summer. And it was I, indeed. <laughs> and it made the news, but I remember swimming here in Wellington Harbour, and it was like swimming in, I described it as salp soup to people, so... It was just full of little lumps of jelly. Yes, I remember that too. <laughs> um, it was it was like a jelly soup swimming in it for sure. And you could see the chains. Now, have you got some pictures you can show me? Because I think you're talking about chains there. I might have to get you to explain the different salp stages because for something that looks like a blob of jelly, I get the impression they're surprisingly complicated. That's very true. Sure. <laughs> some pictures. Which we will put on our webpage. So... This first photo is one species that we found a lot, which is um, Salpa thompsoni. And it's amongst the species that have been studied the most, but they've mostly been studied in Antarctica. So we're studying them in waters that are about 10 degrees warmer, um, which for me is pretty impressive that a species can bloom in, in waters that have such different conditions. So... Right here, this image, this is a photo of uh, Salpa thompsoni oozoid. O-O-Z? O-O-Z. O-O-I-D. Righty <laughs> What size is it? That one's about 10 centimeters long. Pretty big. These ones are pretty big. We started our voyage on, in sub-Antarctic waters, and the, so the salps that we found on that side, this species and another one that I'll talk about later, were all on the relatively big side. And in general, we find colder water species are larger than warmer water species. And that that holds across a lot of different zooplankton groups. Okay, so we're looking at uh, Salpa thompsoni oozoid, which is also called the solitary stage and is also called the asexual stage. So it's a solitary stage, so there's only one. It's called the asexual stage because it's not male or female and it reproduces asexually. So what it does is it produces a chain, and the chain are the organisms that are going to reproduce sexually. So these chains are clones, and the organisms in the chain first start out as females, and then they'll get uh, fertilized, they'll produce an embryo, and then they will become males. And this chain, it looks almost like a necklace of little gelatinous pearls. Yeah, it's very beautiful. (laughs) So these chains right now, they look like these pearls because they're very small. But once they're released by the salp, then they start growing. They typically never achieve the same size as that solitary oozoid, but they can be about you know two-thirds of that size. So they actually grow a whole lot. Now, just before you move on in the picture, there's a couple of darker blobs within that bluey white gelatinous mass. What's that? So the main one that you see is, is the gut. And that one has brown and it has red, and it basically has a lot of the pigmentation of the organisms that they eat. And it's just that the salps see through so you can see its stomach. Exactly, exactly. So the question I got a lot was, why can we see the stomach and we can't see any of the other organs? And the reality is that we can see right through the stomach into the stomach contents. Yeah. And then on that specific photo, the other blob that you're seeing, is pro- it's on the outside of the salp and it's come out of the salp. And it's a fecal pellet, so it's a salt poop, which is one of the one of the main things that we were targeting with this voyage. <laughs> we studied a lot of poop, I guess. So it produces those chains. They're females. They mate. They turn into males. They turn into males. How does the asexual stage get produced? So the asexual stage is basically the baby 
of the females when they get fertilized. Okay, it's so an they're, embryo. they're sort of flicking between a sexual stage and an asexual yeah, stage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and 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 sex change in the middle. You know, <laughs> this is an embryo inside of an individual of a chain, which are called blastozoids. So we have the oozoids, which are the solitary ones, and the blastozoids, which are the zoids in a chain. And this photo here, you can see this is a very tiny budding oozoid, and you can see the placenta, which is how the mother feeds the embryo. And with time, this one will grow into being another oozoid. So you can see that vague relationship with us when you're talking about placentas and feeding the That's embryo. That's true, and, and you think it has, they have internal fertilization, right? They have a lot of these characteristics that we have, for sure. In terms of this voyage you've just done, you were looking for these out at sea. That sounds like a real needle in a haystack operation to me. It was. The idea of it was the most stressful part of the trip, and I knew it would be a challenge. But our voyage was partitioned into different experimental cycles, so we wanted to target areas that had high salp abundances and areas that had low ones or none so that we can contrast them. And then I also wanted to study these patterns both in waters that were influenced um, by subantarctic waters and subtropical waters. There's a number of fish in New Zealand that feed exclusively or primarily on salps. Some of them are Oreos. Others are Warahu, also eat salps. So I targeted an area um, south of Banks Peninsula, which is an important habitat for Oreos. And then we put in a net, and lo and behold, we found some salps. And, but then we were in only about 600 meters of water, and so I wanted to get more into like 1,000 meters of water. You know, so we transited a bit more. We kept finding them, so we're like, okay, we'll start our first experimental cycle here. So it was pretty lucky how quickly we found the salps in subantarctic waters. I can't say the same thing for the subtropical waters, we found them, but they were like very few numbers. And then we stopped every 10 nautical miles and did a bongo tow. And then we. So a bongo tow is a kind of plankton net. Yes, a plankton net that is in duplicate. So it kind of looks like, you know, your bongo instruments. So we did what we call the bongathons. <laughs> nice. <laughs> We'd stop every 10 nautical miles and do a bongo and process sample. And there were times when we got up to things like 300 salps in a tow. These ones were only about one centimeter long at most. So they're there, but, you know, on, on the warm side, I didn't actually find that many. How many species of salps are there? 48. Now, do you have some samples here in the invertebrate collection? I do. May we go and have a look? <laughs> yes, we may. Fantastic. <laughs> We have come to the formalin lab. Formalin is a good way to preserve a sample if you want to be able to look at the morphology well later. So we um, we kept a lot of specimens in the freezer that we want to use for bio for biochemical analysis, um, for DNA studies, um, and the ones that we kept in formalin were to be able to look at them later. Which brings me to a, an important question. You said there are 48 different species. How on earth do you tell them apart? <laughs> well, so in New Zealand there's only about 14 of those 48. But the main thing that we look at to tell salps apart are the muscle band patterns. Um, and the muscle band patterns are characteristic of every, of every different species. However, you will have noticed that they're actually, when they're alive, they're actually pretty see-through. And so in order to be able to count the muscle bands and look at where the muscle bands attach with each other, they have to be preserved in something. Um, they could be in formalin, 
but out at sea I don't want to be working with formalin. So what I use is vinegar, and vinegar actually denatures the proteins enough so that actually I can see them, and I'm still not working with any kind of strong chemical. <laughs> there we go, Plankton's secret recipe. So let's have a look in some of these jars. Some of them just look like semolina pudding. The or small ones? Tea or something. Yeah, okay, yeah. So the small, all those small but little bubbles, those are chains, and they get broken up when we bring them up with a net. So those, all the little ones are the chains, and then I think in the back, some of the larger ones, which you can see more clearly here, those are the single, the oozoid organisms. These get to be about uh, 10 or 12 centimeters long, the Salpatomsonite oozoids. And, and the, are they one of the bigger species? They are one of the bigger species, but the biggest species is the one that you're looking at right here. Wow. Which is Teta's vagina. And it's a whopper. <laughs> yes. So those get up to about 30 centimeters, and we actually measured one at about 32. So we've passed <laughs> the literature limit that we read. <laughs> so that was pretty exciting. Wahoo, a new world record for salps. Yes. And at the bottom there, you can see there's fecal pellets that came out even after we preserved them. And you can see that they're pretty large, too. So they also, the larger species of salps produces the largest fecal pellet. Not that surprising. <laughs> So let's go back to the voyage. You, you said at the beginning that you were interested in their role in the, in the marine food web. So tell me a bit more about that. Salps are different from, zo- from the other zooplankton because they can eat really small particles. So they can eat types of phytoplankton that the rest of the zooplankton can't eat. So in waters like the subantarctic waters, where there's, there's significant iron limitation, the phytoplankton is really small. And so it's not a type of water where you expect a lot of your typical zooplankton, like krill, copepods, because the transfer of energy is not very efficient. So the very small phytoplankton gets eaten by microzooplankton, which is unicellular zooplankton, and then copepods and krill can eat that. But the more steps that you add into a food web, kind of the less energy you have to, to bring to the top. And salps are different because they have a feeding mesh where they can catch really small particles. So they are in a typical case where you have this large type of zooplankton that can be eaten by fish or other predators, but also has access to the really small phytoplankton at the bottom of the food web. I'm just thinking of they're popping out fecal masses like that all the time. Is that important? Is that helping move nutrients through the water column? Yes. What they're doing is basically sequestering carbon, and they're basically taking carbon from the surface water, which effectively is taking it out of the atmosphere because the surface water is equilibrated with the atmosphere. And because they sink so fast, they don't get eaten on the way down. So it basically moves it to the bottom of the ocean. Um, so in the area close to the Chatham Rise, it'll feed the benthos. So there's a very rich benthic community in the Chatham Rise, so it feeds them. But then a little bit off of the Chatham Rise, like I mean, as, as you go a bit to the south into even deeper waters, it just sequesters it. And if it goes down below 1,000 meters, it takes it out of contact with the atmosphere for about 1,000 years. So it's an important part of the carbon cycle. It's a very important part of the carbon cycle. And what is interesting here is, I mean, salps have been recognized for a long time as being able to have this effect. But because we don't know when they bloom, where they bloom, how often they do it, it's a very hard thing to quantify. But the interesting thing that I found in New Zealand was, it was anecdotal because it was based on a lot of conversations with people, but their blooms are actually not infrequent. And so it can be like a significant part of the carbon cycle um, that we could potentially quantify because it seems to happen every year. It's not like this isolated anomalous event. You've got these frozen samples, you've got some informal, and what have what you got to do for the next few months? Oh my God, so much work. <laughs> we brought 
a lot of samples back. Um, so a lot of the frozen samples, I will dissect the gut out of the salps and analyze them for chlorophyll and also prepare and extract the DNA and prepare them for um, sequencing so we can study what exactly they're eating and compare it to what's out there so we can kind of follow in more detail the food web from the phytoplankton up to the salps. And then the next step in the future will also be to study a little bit more detail who's eating the salps. So Oreo and Wareho you've mentioned. Yes, so we know those. Oreos, a lot of them are feed exclusively or almost exclusively on salps. And Wareho, I think, are um, when the salps are there, that we'll be eating them. Thanks, Maura. Maura Decima is a zooplankton scientist at Niwa. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou al horihori ki reo erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance and you're with Our Changing World. Now, here's producer Sonia Sly with The Good Side of Pain. Sonia's off to the Nelson Marlborough Institute of Technology to find out about research into a new form of pain relief using onga onga, the native New Zealand stinging tree nettle. If you've ever had a close encounter with onga onga, you'll remember it. It is very painful. There's an interesting story behind how the research came about, and that story has just been published in the often quirky Christmas edition of the BMJ, which is a rather sought-after honour amongst researchers. But before we get to that, Sonia discovers that the onga onga extract, the basis for a potential new pain drug, is being tested on some familiar little creatures. These are vials that contain uh, brine shrimp in them. Sea sea monkeys. A favourite food for seahorses, apparently. And this is... Hey, Monday, and I'm a freelance electronics engineer. This here is a containerized system that has a temperature control mechanism in here, a little fan heater. All contained in a vertical wooden box. Inside, there's so much going on. You can set what temperature you need the, the test subjects to be comfortable at. 28 degrees, the optimum temperature, which allows Hamon and the researchers he's working with to monitor changes and growth. And you, you ensure that you control all the parameters that you are able to control, light and temperature, and the way you look at them in this case is very tiny endoscopic webcams. Under each of the vials. Correct, and they're looking up over a period of time. You can capture their motion. After they hatch, they're about one millimetre long and then fully mature one centimetre. My name is Eric Buens. I'm a research professor at NMIT. Who, of course, has been working very closely with Hamon and the design. Hatched about two days ago. How many do you think are actually in there? There's between 10 and 12 in each vial. This is capturing at a periodicity of one every minute. They're changing, and we can measure from this the motility of the subjects in the vials. So it's how fast they move? How fast they move, Why is that important? One of the challenges you have when you're testing a new drug is the administration of it. So what we've done is the sea monkeys are a good model system because we can put the drug into their vial and then they're bathed in the drug and we can see exactly what happens to them. And this is where Gareth Parry comes in. So if I give a shock of your nerve and then record from a muscle, the electrical shock travels down the nerve to the muscle and the muscle then twitches and that twitch is associated with an electrical activity that we can record. He's also a research professor at NMIT and this year was awarded a Fulbright scholarship through the US State Department. He's also a leading expert on... 
GBS or Guillain-Barre syndrome. New Zealand has one of the highest rates of this in the developed world. We have the highest incidence of infection with a little bug called Campylobacter jejuni. One in fifteen hundred, roughly, of people who get exposed to Campylobacter go on to get GBS. And how is that contracted? Food poisoning, mainly from chicken, but also from other meats and occasionally um, non-meat sources. An infecting organism has a molecule on its outer coat that closely resembles a molecule in the nerve. And the immune system is stimulated to attack the invading organism, but then it's looking around and says, that looks sort of similar, and attacks that as well. In most neuropathies, you can get pain. And someone who experienced it is Dr Matt PC who also works at NMIT as part of the broader research department. So I was on my honeymoon in Bali. Felt terrible, ruined the rest of the honeymoon. And then starting to feel better, came back to New Zealand, and that's when I started having the paralysis. It starts in your extremities and ascends up your limbs. I remember chopping some carrots and just my hands weren't as dexterous as they used to be. I went to work the next day and I was carpooling with one of my mates, also a scientist, and I was just telling him I felt a bit weak. And he said, oh, you've, you've, got, you've got GBS. The first thing I did was Wikipedia. I thought, no, that looks terrible. Definitely don't have that. But only a few hours later, his condition declined rapidly. I couldn't walk properly. The doctor said, oh, I know exactly what you've got. I just can't remember the name. And so I said, oh, it's not GBS, is it? And he goes, yeah, yeah, how'd you know, how'd you know? Like I'd won a lottery. <laughs> just the wrong kind, obviously. When I was out of the hospital... I started getting some really, really bad back pain, so they put me on some very, very strong painkillers. They didn't work, so they put me on some more. Initially, Matt read that there was about a 10% fatality rate, only to discover later that it was more like 5%. Now, those over 70 are way more vulnerable, so chances of recovery for him were very high. Matt's took about 6 to 12 months, but it hasn't left him completely. And still got some residual weakness and stamina sort of issues. You know, even now I've got like sort of quite shaky sort of fingers. So Matt talked about the fact that his stamina never really got back to where it was. But also roughly 40% of patients end up with pain with their GBS. And sometimes that can be very long lasting. So we decided that we would like to see if we could come up with strategies to better manage the pain. And this is where the self-experimentation comes in. It started by accident. Eric uh, exposed himself to the New Zealand native stinging nettle, onga onga. I had shot an animal. I was laying there in the bush, and I reached down to grab it, and I didn't think anything of reaching through this green plant that really, in my mind, was nothing different than the green plant sitting next to it. And then I had this just fascinating, stinging sensation. I thought, oh, wow, oh, there's a nettle. Okay, that's fine. I pulled the animal out, and at this point, we were living in a bus. We had just immigrated to New Zealand. I got back to the bus, and I was thinking, oh, my God, what's happening to my hand? It's starting to go numb. Everyone tells me nothing can kill you in the New Zealand bush. They've lied. So Eric went online. He found out that he was stung by... Urtica ferox, onga onga, and there's six papers. And what he read 
freaked him out. They are all on things along the lines of this animal model, a rat model, was exposed to onga onga and it was paralyzed and then... To kill a small animal? Yeah, well, that, that was it, right? Yeah, and then there's academic literature stories about how a dog fell into it, a person fell into it, and I'm like, oh my god, this is terrible. And then finally you find the poison control paper that says this is the most common cause of calls to New Zealand poison controller. It's in the top ten or something. And then, alright, I'm not going to die. The crazy thing was, you have days where you have this numbness sensation and you really can't feel anything. I think what Eric said was, this is cool. We should actually do some research on this. So you all went back to the bush and stuck you. Well, more or less, more or less. We had harvested some onga onga from uh, the bush with permission of Doc and we brought it back to Eric's backyard, snipping the little white spines off the stinging nettle because that's where the poison lives. Just one spine penetrated my glove right here. Which he recorded for three days after exposure. He had a little felt that he had drawn on his finger where the pain was. I was stinging myself with a little pin. I tested my ability to recognise hot and cold, but I feel touch. Was uh, it a kind of a scream kind of pain when it happens? It's just more of an Do you feel like your sort of your hand or whatever is on fire or the answer is yes, it absolutely does. Now now remember there's a difference. What Eric did was put his whole hand in, so he got stung over a broad area. The intense pain is only for maybe thirty seconds to a minute. It feels intense, tingling, fiery, burning sensation. But there's a limit to how far Gareth is prepared to go and putting his body on the line for science. You see, Māori used to use onga onga to treat... Venereal disease. I can imagine rubbing this stuff on your private parts. That would be an interesting experience. It's Uh, not one you're willing to protect yourself. (laughs) But how can something that causes pain also be used to treat it? There is... A known therapeutic called capsaicin, which is derived from the hot chili pepper that is known to bind to the little pain fibers in the skin and can produce improvement in pain. Eric and I sort of thought, you know, that's sort of what happens with anga anga. It hurts when you first get exposed to it, but after that pain subsides, you end up with numbness. If it's given in specific graded doses, you might be able to find a dose that you could give that would inhibit pain without causing the loss of sensation of sufficient degree to uh, run the risk of injuring yourself, cutting or burning or whatever yourself. Because 40% of patients with GBS can get uh, quite significant pain. This numbing characteristic is only in the New Zealand nettle species. Now, back to the research and that little box that we were looking at earlier. The challenge we have, you need to find the one molecule or the family of molecules that are responsible for the biological effect of reducing the sensation of pain. And so using this model system, what we can do is we can look at that whole mixture of the plant and say, okay, right, it works. So we know that these animals are moving slower now, you know, that they're not hatching as quickly. And then we start this what's known as bioassay-guided fractionation, where we start going and separating out until we get one molecule that we put in the vial with the sea monkeys, and then they move slower, or they don't hatch as quickly. That's the one that is the pain medication. How is it different to any other kind of pain relief? 
that might be available? All of the medications that we use to treat pain currently, the great challenge is suppressing the pain without causing a plethora of really unpleasant side effects. Some pain medication can cause anything from nausea to dizziness, itchiness and sweating, to depression, weakening of the immune system, bleeding in the stomach, which can lead to ulcers, and also kidney problems. So we're hoping that Anga Anga yields us a molecule that will have the same safety profile as capsaicin, but will be more potent, applied to the area where the pain is occurring. So how important is self-experimentation to medicine? It's getting harder and harder to do it because uh, ethics committees don't look at it favorably. They think it's uh, inappropriate for doctors to be experimenting on themselves. And one of those reasons is that it can be life-threatening. But without some of the self-experimentation that's gone on in the past, we wouldn't have cures for illnesses that are easily treated today. One of the more famous examples is a guy called Barry Marshall from Western Australia. He actually did the experiment on himself without obtaining ethics approval, and that led to the incredibly important discovery that stomach ulcers were caused by a little bug called Helicobacter. Dr. Marshall got the Nobel Prize for that work. Sometimes that's how research gets going. It's not some earth-shaking hypothesis. It's making an observation and then saying, oh, we should try to understand this better. Thanks, Gareth. That was Gareth Perry, and we also heard from Eric Buins, and they are at the Nelson Marlborough Institute of Technology. Thanks, too, to Matt Pesey, Heyman Dye, and producer Sonia Sly. And... That's the show for this year. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next year on the 24th of January. But between now and then, there's summer science. We'll be replaying some of this year's popular stories, along with some exciting new podcasts from science communication students at the University of Otago. And they'll all be on air after the 7 o'clock news on Wednesday and Thursday evenings. You can find Summer Science online where you can also find all our past stories. There's enough there to keep your ears busy for many days. rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld Don't forget, you can also subscribe to us as a podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify and most other podcast places. Just search for RNZ Our Changing World. Stay in touch with us. We're on Twitter and Facebook at RNZ Science. Have a great summer break. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.